This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm not Matt Chorley because he's sitting opposite me looking slightly worried because this is not normal. Uh, basically, what I'm going to try and do is explain uh, what on earth is going on in British politics, why it has gone so mad. That's going to take about four or five hours and uh, then we're going to quickly break and we're going to finish with a song. Happy Christmas, everyone. You've clearly reached the point in festivities where a podcast is required to give you a much needed break from your family. My name is Alex Jakes, and usually at this point of the pod, I'm on the other side of the glass. But we've decided that even Matt is not enough of an egotist to interview himself <laughs> about his own one-man show. But he's not above plugging it. Well, it's very kind of you, Alex. It's almost embarrassing you've brought it up. But as you have done, uh, it is probably worth me pointing out that I am doing the This Is Not Normal show once more in January, January the 25th. Uh, the Bloomsbury Theatre in London, lovely theatre um, just near Euston. You can get tickets on the Bloomsbury Theatre website or you know, look at my Twitter feed where I repost it about five times a day. Yeah, tickets are on sale. They're selling fast. But if you haven't yet done your Christmas shopping for that person in your life who has everything, I think tickets to the Bloomsbury Theatre is exactly what they're looking for. So who came up with this idea? Did you come up with the idea or did someone approach you? So it's a bit of a long-winded story, this, but basically the Times sponsored the Cheltenham Literary Festival, and it's more than just putting up some posters and logos and that sort of thing. They organise panel debates, Times journalists interview authors, the editorial conference is done live uh, in front of uh, an audience and that sort of thing. So somebody from the Cheltenham Literary Festival got in touch with me and said, would I do something? I said, yeah, we'd do like a live podcast. We've done those before. And they came back and said, oh, no, um, I understand you used to do stand-up. Would you do stand up for an hour about politics and the obvious answer to that should have been no i i mean crucially i should point out i did not used to do stand up yeah it was wrong it was based on something that was totally wrong well it was well so i used to be in a sketch group uh, a long time ago i was in a sketch group called big day out i'm sure you're familiar with it uh, if you were in edinburgh in 2005 and went to see a three man sketch group in a porter cabin then it may have been us. So it was me, a mate called Lewis Georgeson, who I met because I was at college uh, to my A-levels with his sister and his university mate, Will Kenning. And we just had a sort of shared love of comedy. So we did, we, yeah, we, and we formed a sketch group and uh, we went to Edinburgh and then we wrote a sitcom for Radio 4 that they didn't want. Uh, we did it for a couple more years, but that we sort of 
well, basically, we all got proper jobs and girlfriends, so sitting around over, arguing over who was going to wear the hat suddenly wasn't quite so appealing. But as a result of that, people don't really know what being in a sketch group means, and so they think, oh, well, he used to do comedy, he therefore must have done stand-up. And I've done a lot of hosting of things and pub quizzes where I just get drunk and shout at people, so people have this sense that I've done stand-up comedy. Although it was something I'd always sort of toyed with, but the trouble with stand-up, unlike being in a sketch group, is there's no one who's going to make you do it. And then I thought, well, look, at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, it's hardly jonglers on a Friday night. Welcome to This Is Not Normal. This is not normal. All of you being here is not normal. I couldn't believe it when my good friend Diane Abbott told me we'd sold 50,000 tickets. (laughs) And if it went wrong, you could say it was a one-man show and get out of it that way. Exactly. And nobody need know. It wasn't like everyone from the Westminster bubble was going to come and I was going to permanently undermine my otherwise serious reputation in politics. Uh, I had a, a PowerPoint presentation as well to show, partly to show photos of the people I'm talking about, but also as a prompt that if, no matter how lost I got, if I skipped onto the next slide, that would take me back to where I was supposed to be. This is the 2017 election. It's going to be like a TED Talk. Now, this is the 2017 election campaign. So the Tories went from 3.30 to 3.17. Labour went from 2.32 to 2.62. Labour got the second highest number of seats, which if you remember at the time, they told us that meant they won. Uh, the Labour Party told us they'd won. The, we've basically won. In terms of time, when was the last performance in the sketch group and then up until you're on stage at Cheltenham? So that's a good question. So the last thing, one of the last things we did was, Will is an actor. Uh, he's an actor now and he writes and directs and he makes short films and adverts and that sort of stuff. But he's also a brilliant panto actor. He's been in panto an awful lot. Uh, he's in panto this year in Dunstable. Uh, we'll be going to see him on Boxing Day as the dame in Peter Pan. He was away that Christmas in 2007 in actual panto. So Lewis and I did a two-man panto where we did the whole of Cinderella with just two of us. <laughs> um, Lewis knew someone who had basically had the keys to a panto storeroom. And so we borrowed all these amazing sort of pantomime dame costumes and that sort of thing. And we, we planned it all so that, you know, things like I couldn't be Cinderella and Prince Charming because they would have to meet. And the sort of logistics of trying to do a panto with only two people. Cheltenham goes well. How does Cheltenham turn into a very good experience and one that you can look back on fondly to a tour around some of the country? (laughs) It's not quite as nationwide as some of the publicity might have suggested. So uh, around the time of Cheltenham, I think it might even be before I'd done Cheltenham, a guy called Ed Smith, who works for uh, Phil McIntyre, so comedy promoters, he got in touch and said he'd read Redbox for a long time, did I fancy doing a tour? And I said, well, can I do it once first and see if this is going to work so off the back of Cheltenham going quite well we were talking sort of around the beginning of this year and I'd agreed I was going to do the show again in London for Times Readers which I did at Bloomsbury Theatre and so the tour sort of was born out of that and it was essentially an experiment it was an experiment to see can you take someone who writes stuff in a morning email and in a newspaper if you um, send them around the country uh, and basically the the tour dates he sent me a whole list of venues and it was partly me trying to fit them around party conferences and family birthdays and all that sort of stuff. Basically, we ended up with nine dates, uh, one of which was in Leeds, and the rest were basically south of Birmingham. Which means that we almost certainly have to get Jen Williams back on the podcast at some point in 2020. <laughs> Lots of people got in touch with me and said, why do you hate Manchester, Birmingham, And why do you Liverpool, hate Manchester and Birmingham? Scotland, uh, Wales. I don't hate those places at all. It was partly logistical that I was thinking, well, most of these places I can get to easily in a day. 
so I can still be doing my day job. For some reason, I thought I, it would make sense for me to do my day job while also doing this. So I would find myself writing the email in the morning, coming into Westminster uh, for a few hours, and then getting on a train to wherever, doing the show, and then waking up in a hotel room, sometimes with a hangover, and then doing my normal day job and writing the writing the email. And occasionally getting texts and emails from me going, can you do something for the podcast whilst you're there as well? Yeah, partly, you know, as Dominic Cummings says, get out of the Westminster bubble and go and speak to some real people. What it did mean was the places I went, I did try to do something else. So whether that was when I went to Taunton and I spent a whole day recording a podcast there about what was going on in Taunton and the political scene and what people made of what was happening in politics. I did a similar thing in Leeds. Even, even the places where I didn't record stuff for the podcast, I tried to find a way of slightly taking the temperature the thing i hadn't really thought about when planning the tour and then doing the show was what i would learn about the places that we went to at the start you had a very clear way of testing what sort of audience you had in front of you yeah i can't remember if i thought this was a good idea to find out where the audience stood off i just thought it'd be funny but basically i thought let's test right from the beginning where the audience are on the big issue of the day give us a b, b. give us an r Give us an E. e. Give us an X. Yes. Give us an I. I. Give us a T. C. What do we want? <laughs> I mean, the, the response was pretty similar Good. everywhere. They were very enthusiastic on the B. Some of them got there before me, but you know, by the X they were already shouting "Remain," and by the end it all sort of fizzled out. And I made this joke about "Oh, Waitrose is empty tonight," but it was quite it was quite useful. So when I went to Bowie St Edmunds, there was definitely a bigger leave contingent there. I'd say of the of two or three hundred people there, I would say there were a few dozen people who put their hands up to uh, say so they voted leave. So I literally got them to put their hands up so I could identify them. It was instructive because actually it did mean that I subconsciously probably slightly tilted the show towards taking the mick out of some Remainers with slightly more enthusiasm. And actually it was nice that speaking to friends who were then in the audience after the shows. They said that as people were leaving, they would say, well, I'm a leaver, but um, I thought it was very even-handed and uh, all that sort of stuff. I don't think I went anywhere, and even in all the tweets and emails and stuff that I got afterwards, nobody, I don't think, accused me of being biased one way or the other. So the other thing about coming out and shouting, give us a B, give us an R, give us an EXIT, it's supposed to be a show, that it's not me ambling out at a sort of book signing or something and just... I'm going to tell you some stories. It was supposed to be a show. And I remember this from when we used to do the sketch show. You always put one of your best sketches first because you need to convince the audience they are in safe hands. And once they're like, oh, OK, he knows what he's doing, they relax and then they'll go with you. Little Lib Dem press officer comes running over. They're very keen, a Lib Dem press officer. Uh, they've got to be. They are very, very... I mean, they're pleased to see anyone. They're like old people, you know. They're just, they can go days. They can go days without speaking to anyone. <laughs> Do, if you've got time this Christmas, do just call a Lib Dem press officer. They'd be, they'd be very pleased to hear from you. So the format of the show covers your time in Westminster from the start up until present day. Yeah, it starts in 2005. And I basically, it's basically my definitely maybe. It's sort of every good idea that I've 
had possibly or every story certainly every story that i've got and i just thought it was it, the whole so it's called this is not normal which is a phrase i kept using in the red box email to basically explain politics is mad but we shouldn't just accept that this stuff is okay it actually was born out of jeremy corbyn and anti-semitism which is not exactly ripe for laughs necessarily but the, this is not normal became sort of a catchphrase if you like which encapsulated what was going on in politics so what i was going to try and do was explain why politics had gone so mad so it seemed to make sense to start in 2005 when politics was really boring tony blair had just won his third landslide election victory uh, the tories had gone into that election with a slightly weird former home secretary who was obsessed with immigration and done less well than they expected and luckily they learned that lesson and they'd never do that again and then david cameron became leader and that was a, a big shift in politics. after that long period of, of new labor government politics started changing then under david cameron and i was you know i managed to join start working in parliament just after the summer of 2005 in fact just after we'd been to edinburgh i got a job working in parliament i've been there ever since so this sort of arc if you like is it's it's sort of chronological order this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened but it actually it's a sort of series of stories loosely strung together on a chronological line but obviously the problem is that the news kept on happening uh and you know in the last 12 months i mean i had a period where at the cheltenham show there was just a little bit of theresa may uh towards the end when i basically said i didn't think she was very good uh but she was just sort of clinging on she once said the worst thing she'd ever done was run through fields of wheat and then she just ran through tory marginals with a scythe <laughs> so Theresa May lost the majority, but she managed to stay in the job. Amazingly, they let her stay in the job, which was really embarrassing for all those other people like Boris Johnson and David Oates and local man Jeremy Hunt, that they decided that they would go, they would stick with the person they knew was useless rather than give someone else a go. It's like your, all of your mates saying, yeah, we're going to go paintball and we're going to go with your nan instead. And then by the time I did it in May, she'd resigned, but we hadn't got a Tory leader. And then by the time the tour started in September, we'd got Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and we had a sort of party conferences and propagation and all that sort, sort of stuff. And then by the time, the, halfway through the tour, we caused the general election. So it was quite a lot of stuff I had to keep shoveling in on the back. For that rewrite process, are you rewriting on the day? How quickly would the change be made? So there's, there's a bit of a conflict because the thing I found a couple of times is I put in something a sort of an oblique reference to something. I think maybe it might be Jennifer Arcuri or something like that early on. And I suddenly realised nobody knows what I'm talking about. This is something that I'm aware of. I was in the news a couple of days ago, but it hasn't got cut through yet. And you can't, if people don't know what you're talking about, you can't then make a joke about it. However, the flip side of that is that sometimes I was breaking news to people. <laughs> so in Taunton, for example, there was one of the big votes in the House of Commons where MPs had taken control of the agenda happened on the night that I was on stage in Taunton. So I, could, I actually came out, I think after the interval and broke the news the MPs had basically decided they didn't know what to do and we were in a quagmire of mess and maybe we should just stay in the theatre and live there just live on small pots of ice cream and bags of Maltesers and I remember being in Leeds on the day that Jacob Rees-Mogg had said that people in uh, it suggested that people at the Grenfell Tower fire had lacked common sense and anyone with common sense would have just ignored the advice and left the building. And so what I was able to do there was put up a photo of Jacob Rees-Mogg, literally tell to stunned silence what Jacob Rees-Mogg had said and then uh, explain that the only person who'd come out to defend Jacob Rees-Mogg was Andrew Bridgen. <laughs> um, and you know things are bad when it's only Andrew Bridgen who, who will defend you. And the extraordinary thing that Andrew Bridgen had said when he said that Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, it was clever... Uh, and he knew what he was talking about. And then the interviewer said to him, you seem to be suggesting that he wouldn't have died in a fire because he's cleverer. 
Andrew Bidgen's reply was, well, we want clever people running the country, don't we? And there were audible gasps in the... But then yeah. it was in sort of interest because stuff actually... And we never saw him again. We never saw that. him again, fortunately. It was interesting that stuff would come in, but then it suddenly felt like a long time ago. So I had the photo of Jacob Rees-Mogg reclining on the front bench in for a while and then it suddenly felt so old even though it was like four or five weeks earlier maybe the last 10-15 minutes of the show there was this sort of updating so what has survived from Cheltenham to your last performance which was in Exeter <laughs> probably the bit that I like doing the most is the Paul Nuttall <laughs> stuff so the thing that I really found was anyone can do a joke about Boris Johnson my gran can do a make a half decent joke about something Boris Johnson's done uh, and obviously I have to do Boris Johnson now because he's Prime Minister but going oh he's a wally or whatever is is not you're not particularly challenging the audience with that unless you've got a really good line and what I found was talking to the audience about the more obscure people they seemed to enjoy more because they were sort of learning something along the way so in fact the risk of talking constantly about Andrew Bridgen Andrew Bridgen's a prime example where uh, I basically explained this bloke as a menace he hands around Parliament talking nonsense to journalists. And if you ever see him in a newspaper on TV, you can just discount everything that he says. And I re- read out a long list of things that he'd passed comment on. And it was, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the A111, pay for Strictly Come Dancing stars and whether or not Winston Church was a homosexual. He'd sort of, he'd been quoted in newspapers on all these mad topics. And actually pointing out to people that he was he was an idiot, went down very well. And quite a lot of the time, i just get a laugh by telling people what had happened. So when Andrew Bridgen went on the radio, he was on an Irish radio station and he was being challenged about what happens after Brexit relations <laughs> with Ireland. And he said that, uh, well, British people can get an Irish passport. And the interview said, what? No, they can't do that. Uh, and he said, yes, you can. You can just get an Irish passport. And what basically what happened was he'd heard lots of people saying that after Brexit, they were going to get an Irish passport without realising that they were Irish. <laughs> And uh, that gets a laugh, even though I'm just telling people what happened. Yeah. See, Paul Nuttall is a prime example. Paul Nuttall was the UKIP leader from October 2016 till June 2017. And he was a guy who was going to take UKIP from being just about the EU into a fully-fledged political party. And reminding people of what a wally he was and the stuff that he said and the scrapes that he got in. I want to talk to you about this guy. This is Paul Nuttall. He was the UKIP leader from October 2016 until June 2017. Paul Nuttall. Paul Nuttall was basically the guy who was going to take UKIP from just being obsessed with leaving the EU and turn it into a fully-fledged political party with a lot of you know, proper policies. Uh, so his first policy, he had a rummage in the BNP's dustbin, and his first policy was he wanted to ban the burqa. And people said to him, Paul, is that not a bit Islamophobic? You know, your first policy is to ban the burqa. He said, no. He said he was worried about vitamin D levels. He was worried that women who wore the burqa were not going to get enough sunshine and that's why they <laughs> would be shocked with vitamin D and that's the only reason he wanted to ban. Anyway, he said it's not just the burqa, it's all face coverings, he said, all face coverings. So Paul Nuttall gave a press conference where he was asked about this policy, about uh, banning face coverings. People said, Paul, what about the wedding veil? Will that be banned? He said, no, the wedding veil will be fine. Uh, the wedding veil will be absolutely fine. And then people said, what about beekeepers? Beekeepers, will they be all right, Paul? <laughs> Beekeepers, they're going to have to run the gauntlets. <laughs> and they're getting their honey. He said, no, beekeepers would be fine. And then he went on the TV. Here's Paul Nuttall on the TV. He went on the TV and came out with one of the standout sort of policy positions of any uh, politician ever. He ended up saying this. No, no, not big hats at all. He had to go on national telly and confirm he was not going to ban big hats. <laughs> which was good news for this man, who's not only wearing a big hat, but a full suit of armour. 
for reasons which were never explained. Paul Nuttall gave his interview in front of a sort of reenactment of the Middle Ages, which I think is just where UKIP want to take us back to. Now, Paul Nuttall had problems. Paul Nuttall had problems with his CV. His CV. In fact, his CV could not have been flakier if he'd written it on the side of a bus. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just take you through some of the things that Paul Nuttall said. Uh, Paul Nuttall claimed to have played football for Tranmere Rovers. Odd thing to make up, but it was not true. Paul Nuttall claimed to have a PhD. We've all done it. I think that's what LinkedIn is for. If it isn't, I really don't know what LinkedIn is for. But that turned out to be not true. And I remember in Cheltenham, there's a woman on the front row in Cheltenham in this sort of marquee at the Literary Festival with maybe, I don't know, like 300, 350 people in the tent. Uh, there's a woman sitting on the front row in tears at the Paul Nuttall stuff. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is a man who doesn't matter anymore. I wouldn't know if he could have been in the room and I wouldn't have known. I thought, actually, this is what people want. They want the more obscure stuff. So a lot of that has survived. And basically, the first half now is from 2005 until Theresa May quit in, what was it, May this year. And that's the first half. That's basically locked in without too many changes. And then the second half is Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister and everything that's happened since then. We hear a lot about the Westminster bubble. Were you surprised with the audience reaction to certain characters in there, like someone like Dominic Cummings? Yeah, so um, Dominic Cummings was really interesting. Because obviously Dominic Cummings, Prime Minister's senior advisor, was caught on camera one day telling journalists outside his house to get out of London and find out what real people think. And what I discovered was Dominic Cummings has turned into a panto baddie. So <laughs> Boris and Edmonds, I think, was the most leave seat that I went to. Although, let's not muck about people who go to regional art centres to see a man from the Times talking about politics tend to be more on the Ramona liberal elite end of the spectrum. It has to, you know, so I'm not pretending that the audience was in any way representative. However, I made some passing reference in Boris and Edmonds, and I remember in the first half, and there was this sort of booing and hissing uh, noise, so spontaneous, in a way that a couple of other shows, when I'd mentioned Nigel Farage, had the same, I, I could understand that people know Nigel Farage's, but the fact that people knew who Dominic Cummings was and had this reaction, I just thought was uh, really interesting. He was getting cut through. He is a personality. He is better known than most of the cabinet. Um, personally, I think Dominic Cummings looks very So even though it's a more Ramonery skewed audience, I think it's fair to say that the show is an equal opportunity festival of rudeness towards the people in politics. Uh, we had a moment earlier in the year where you were interviewing David Cameron, where he feigned, you know, the standard politicians. Oh, I should come along to this show that's near me. And you were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that. Quite a lot of it is about it, you. It, or maybe he was at the time. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If he came now, I'm not sure he features <laughs> that much. He's, he's now in like, the history part. He's in the first half. So I'm sitting in David Cameron's front room. I'm supposed to be interviewing him. He comes into his front room, still tucking himself in, a bit confused to see me there, goes off and has his breakfast. Confusion allayed. We decided to do the interview. He was going to be driven to a helipad and we're going to do the interview in the car. So we get in the car, lovely car, lovely chauffeur-driven car, lovely cream leather seats in the back, easy to wipe down after a long day of being a conservative. And uh, we get in the car and I'll ask him lots of really difficult questions like, why should people vote conservative? Why do you like Cornwall so much? What's your favourite farm animal? If only, if only I'd asked a follow-up, I could have had that scoop. 
uh, long before. <laughs> little pig joke for you there. He's sort of been relegated to the History Channel rather than the News Channel. Yeah, I mean, I, yes. I mean, I obviously take the mickey out of uh, David Cameron and Theresa May and Boris Johnson, but also Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson and Nigel Farage. I'd like to think it's pretty equal opportunities. I think the big difference is that I'm not doing this with an axe to grind. There are a lot, you know, then we've, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast before when we have comedians on that, you know, they're all lefties unless they're making a point of being, you know, a right-wing comedian. And as a result, I think comedians doing political stuff tend to be, I'm going to change your minds now about the evil Tories or whatever. And I'm not, I'm not about changing anyone's mind. If people, if people learn something about the political process, whether it's how journalists work or MPs work or whatever, then that's a bonus. But it's basically just supposed to be a bit of a laugh of like some funny stories. Do you hear back from any of the uh, MPs that you make fun of? Um, no, not yet. Although I know of several who are planning to come to the show in January. One cabinet minister sent me a text saying, don't be too mean about me. And I didn't have the heart to say, you're not really important enough for me to have put you in the show yet. So now, I'm, uh, now I don't <laughs> so know. So now you're I... constructing meanness. Well, exactly. Now do, do I include him or not? And actually, I mean, in Finchley, Luciana Berger uh, came to see it. She was the Labour MP who left Form Change UK, then left and joined the Lib Dems, and she was standing in Finchley in Golders Green. She was in the audience, and I mentioned her, and she got a big cheer. Again, you know, the, it's a big Jewish area, um, Finchley, and so the fact that she was standing there having left the Labour Party over anti-Semitism, I made some small swipe at Jeremy Corbyn at the beginning, and it sort of brought the house down. Uh, and by the time I got to the second half, where I did a rant about how appalling the anti-Semitism issue was in the which, which is probably the only truly serious bit of the show yeah not? yeah not that i'm remotely thinking that i can change people's minds but i think if there was any point to it pointing out to an audience that the history of jeremy corbyn and anti-semitism whether it's the mule he couldn't spot that it was anti-semitic or whether it's the people he surrounded himself with or the way they've handled cases of anti-semitism or the very fact that the Labour Party is being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission uh, is outrageous. And it should be pointed out as outrageous. And Labour people keep saying, oh, what about the Tories and Islamophobia? Well, bluntly, the Labour Party used to have the moral high ground on this. You know, they're supposed to be the people who campaign against this stuff, not say, oh, yeah, but there's racism everywhere. They used to hold themselves to a higher standard. So, yeah, that was the one time that I did get you know a bit ranty but luckily the way out of that was then to say but luckily a group of them did break away and they formed change uk and just the mention of change uk completely changed the mood we mentioned taunton earlier on it's your hometown we did a podcast from taunton earlier in the year what percentage of the audience was your friends and family <laughs> well it was quite high it was probably the show i was most nervous about because People were coming not because they loved my work or the Times or politics. They were coming because my auntie had booked about three rows. So I kept getting messages from my auntie Sarah saying, uh, I've booked another row. And I was slightly concerned that there were basically going to be lots of um, farmers from Chedzie, which is a village on the Somerset levels, uh, <laughs> being very confused. <laughs> Here, Sarah, what if you brought me to? I, I'm allowed to do the accent. It's, uh, it's not racist. So, yeah, I felt the pressure that friends and family were coming not necessarily knowing what they were going to get. And politics isn't everyone's cup of tea. I hope that it's pretty accessible because it's basically I'm telling jokes about people doing daft things 
they just all happen to be politicians. But no, Taunton was um, interesting. And I played the Brew House Theatre, which is the main theatre in Taunton, which I think seats about 350, 400, something like that, uh, and sold out the main theatre. Whereas Big Day Out, we'd only done the smaller studio space uh, when um, we performed in Taunton before. It was Yeah, so I, I felt a lot of pressure, but equally it was just great. And it, at the end, when I do the song, uh, the this is not normal song and got the audience to join in. Uh, at the very end of the song, I asked everyone to put their hand up if they knew me <laughs> personally. And I don't know, maybe a third of the audience put their hands up. I was thinking, oh God, I went to college with that. Oh, I went to well, that's so-and-so's mum and dad. And oh, look, there's um, the local BBC reporter who I used to work closely with when I was on the Taunton Times and all that. So I actually said on stage, I'm going to the pub afterwards around the corner of the Ring of Bells and... Uh, I walked out the back of the theatre and bumped into a couple who I couldn't I couldn't quite place them and I thought I think they might be friends with my best mate's parents or something like that and then halfway through the conversation I realised it was my old deputy head uh, so literally everyone I'd ever met in Somerset and he'd since, come to heckle you and he'd come and he'd oh, and say I was, I was entirely right he did say a very sort of teachery thing about you were always very cheeky or you know there was a sort of I remember I had a school report once it said he shares his ideas readily with others <laughs> which is basically stop bloody talking um yeah and then i went to the pub afterwards and it was like a wedding and it, literally everyone in the pub were people i knew and i looked out the window and there was a queue of people trying to get into the pub basically queuing up to sort of say hello and that was the bit which i was generally touched because i mean i don't go and support loads of people doing whatever <laughs> they're doing you've got tons of friends oh, that you would not have turned yeah that i for. wouldn't have bothered with people are really nice in a way what has been nicer is people i don't know getting in touch and saying they enjoy the show because my family have got to say that they enjoyed it immensely and people coming back twice that's the sort of thing that meant a lot but no taunton was really was really nice we've talked about this before about the most recent era of politics being ripe for comedy do you think this show would have been possible in the coalition or the final player years i mean possibly i mean politics has been mad one way or another really since the coalition in the sense that politics was normal when you had a government that got on and did stuff and occasionally the opposition poked them with a stick and the rest of the time normal people went about their lives not thinking about it and there is part of me that can't help thinking it was slightly better for everyone's <laughs> i don't know like mental health this country cannot function if the entire population is watching bbc parliament every night i mean i suppose even the coalition although it was unusual the coalition it's still a effectively functioned like a normal government you know then you had this independence referendum in scotland and all that sort of stuff but it was politicians not behaving like they're supposed to i think was the point that politics started going mad so you know whether that's jeremy corbyn or theresa may or boris johnson and the sort of day-to-day -day relentlessness of it all yeah i've been very lucky this opportunity came up at a time when people were very interested in politics they want to come and see people talking about it i don't know if I'd done it in 2005, whether or not that would have been a thing. Like, I don't remember being in Edinburgh and we saw loads of shows. We'd go and see like three or four a day. So we saw yeah. loads over the month. I don't remember seeing a single political thing. Whereas if you go to Edinburgh now, you can't it's wall-to-wall -wall, yeah. uh, political stuff. Which is interesting because if you look at mainstream UK satire, considering there is a phenomenal history in this country of things like the frost report and spitting image and so on and so forth you would expect this era to be chock-a-block 
on UK TV like it is in America, where I think I added up with all the late night shows that always do their monologue about Trump. It's about <laughs> 10 million people a night in America are switching on satire, as you described before, usually about that day's events to the point that comedy shows like The Late Show have started hiring people with news backgrounds because that is now the way that comedy is presented. Satire is that big in America. And yet, in the UK, what, The Mash Report? And that's a limited series. Yeah, I mean, The Mash Report is the closest to that. And I think they've done some really good stuff. It's more like Mock the Week than Have I Got News For You. Yeah. Uh, if you know what I mean. And it's fine, you know, and that has a place. But yeah, you're right. There isn't a point in the day or the week where you can get the news with a smile on its face, if you like. I mean, there was, there was a, that was basically the thing that Jon Stewart had done amazingly in, in America with The Daily yeah. Show, where there was there ended up being stats about the number of Americans who whose main news source was watching The Daily Show. And that, it just doesn't seem to have worked yet. Now, I think... You know, obviously, if there's any commissioning editors listening, I am available and I know Rory Bremner well, so we come as a package. Did um, that very subtly. <laughs> I don't know why it's not. Well, I don't know why it's not a thing on Channel 4 or done properly on, on uh, BBC Two or something like that. Obviously, the part of the problem with doing very topical news is in an era when everyone's watching stuff on catch up and box sets and all that sort of stuff. If you've got money to splash around on a new series, if it's going to be comedy, maybe you do do a panel show or sitcom that can be repeated endlessly and uploaded to iPlayer or sold to Dave or whatever it is, rather than a topical show, which is of interest for that period and 24 hours afterwards. But yeah, it is surprising that given everything that's happened in politics over the last two, three, four years, that there hasn't been still the most well-known vehicle for being funny about politics if i got news for you which has been on air since 1908 hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The title of the show is This Is Not Normal. Given what we saw a couple of weeks ago, are we heading back to normal? 
it does feel like that in as much as the political structures will feel more like politics has done for the last, I don't know, 40 years, in that we've got a Conservative majority government, which will be able to get on and do things. We're not going to be gripped by late-night process and Oliver Letwin taking control of the parliamentary agenda and all that sort of stuff. However, the characters have not changed. And I think Boris Johnson's capacity to do unusual stuff is still there he's still got an interesting cabinet i think it's fair to say and actually one of the things that i've done in the show is just read out the cabinet you know whether it's pretty patel or dominic raab or uh, gavin williamson they all get a good laugh people know who these people are and are slightly appalled that they're running the country so all those characters are still there and obviously we've got the labor party leadership contest the fallout of corbynism and who's going to replace him as labor leader so um i don't think things that suddenly go back to normal if it means that i'm slightly less tired actually variety is good and it might be that we get to expand the cast of characters a bit because we might have some education policy so people find out who the education secretary is i did a th- <laughs> in the very first show in cheltenham i actually had a graph comparing the press coverage of andrew bridgen and Damien Hines. And Andrew Bridgen, some weeks, was getting a lot more press coverage than the actual education sector at the time. Maybe, if we do start getting back to some policy stuff, uh, then we'll expand the cast of characters. Yeah, I don't think we are going to go back to a period of people tuning out of politics or politicians not doing mad stuff. Wait, I don't know who's wrapping up. Are you wrapping up, Alex, or shall I do it? Go on, you do it. I do. I could do it off the top. Well... Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen to Silent Time Morning. Email thetimes.kdk forward slash redbox. Well, excellent stuff. Well remembered. And I thought we'd finish this rather weird reverse interview by playing one of my favourite bits of the show, which is considering you're a man with the two Ronnies theme tune as your ringtone. This is, this is totally right. I'm a bit obsessed with the two Ronnies and have been for a lot. There's not really any explanation for it because I'm, I'm technically a bit young to have caught them properly the first time out. I think it's because we got Sky Telly when I was quite young and the only thing on it was essentially UK Gold, which re-ran EastEnders from the beginning. So I think I can remember <laughs> when EastEnders launched, despite <laughs> it being, I think, before I was born. And there were a lot of two Ronnies reruns on it and I just loved the puns and the wordplay in the dressing up and particularly Ronnie Barker not just because we share a birthday and I love the whole story about how he used to submit sketches under a pseudonym Gerald Wiley who he then you know revealed uh, there was him himself so yeah I'm a big fan of the two Ronnies and I think we were able to tell <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn goes on Mumsnet is asked what's your favourite biscuit he replies if forced he would have shortbread if forced <laughs> If for- who'd force you to have shortbread unless you've been taken hostage by a Scottish terrorist and he's probably friends with them anyway every journalist uses a dictaphone I don't know why they don't use their finger like everyone else she lost ministers like I lose iPhone chargers and yet she still had power uh, for the benefit of younger members of the audience there was once a time when you didn't have GPS maps on your phone for the benefit of older members of the audience one day you're going to have GPS maps on your phone. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.